Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime, where we get big mad over true crime. I'm your host, Heather Ashley, and today's case is out of Provo, Utah. Small talk sucks, so let's dive in. Elizabeth Salgado lived a love-centered, simple life. She was born and raised in Chiapas, Mexico, and was one of several siblings. Her family and her faith were everything to her. They had converted to the LDS or Mormon church in the 2000s, which is when both education and religion became a priority of hers. Both of Elizabeth's parents were extremely educated. I'm talking engineer educated. An episode of Disappeared noted that her mom was a chemical engineer and her dad was both an electrical and a communications engineer. Elizabeth, being undoubtedly brilliant, followed right in her parents' footsteps, earning her own degree in industrial engineering. That's a big deal to anyone, but like we said before, her faith was just as important, if not more important to her than her education, so she decided it was time to apply for her LDS mission. Both men and women in the LDS church are expected to go on 18-month missions in their early adult life, though a few members of the church have told me that it tends to be a little more male-focused these days, but they're a huge deal and something that the members of the church take a lot of pride in. I spoke to a hiring manager from the area this case takes place in, and she said that without fail, if a person applying for a job within her company is a member of the LDS church, a detailed account of the mission is included with their resume. When you feel like you're ready for your mission, you send in an application hoping to be chosen. Then, according to the church's website, they take into consideration things like worthiness, age, finances, and general attitude, and then let you know if you've been chosen and, if so, where you've been called to. Finances are pretty important here because you're responsible for the costs associated with your mission. In the end, Elizabeth got her call, and conveniently enough, it was in Mexico. She took a long break from the outside world, shared her faith, and came back with an even deeper love for the LDS church. Not long after returning from her mission, Elizabeth was offered a scholarship to a school called Nomen Global in Provo, Utah. It's a language center in Provo where she was going to be able to attend for free and learn English. Becoming fluent in English would be a big deal for her, not only because being a bilingual industrial engineer would be amazing, but it would also allow her to share her faith with people from all different walks of life. As a whole, Elizabeth's family was really excited for her. This was an incredible opportunity, but at the same time, they were a little worried about her going to a whole different country all by herself. From what I can tell, Elizabeth was soft-spoken and a little timid, but she was also a strong, educated woman, and if anywhere in the U.S. was going to be a temporary home for her, Provo, Utah was going to be a good fit. According to World Atlas, 67% of the population in Utah is Mormon, with more than 2 million members. That's a pretty impressive number, but Provo's numbers were even more impressive. 90% of the residents there are members of the LDS Church. Elizabeth was definitely going to be stepping out of her comfort zone, but she knew this was something she wanted to do. As scary as it was coming to a new country speaking just a little basic English, she took comfort in the fact that she was going to be surrounded by people who shared the same values as her, and that was enough to make her feel safe. It also helped that she actually had an uncle who lived in Provo, Uncle Rudy, so she was at least going to have one familiar face around. 
In late March 2015, Elizabeth packed everything she needed and headed to Utah. Her first day in Provo was pretty uneventful. She was tired and there was a lot to take in and the next day was going to be a big one. She got some rest and the following morning, her new life began. That morning, the schedule on ElizabethSalgado.info says that she went to the school to get whatever she needed to get started, got a ride to the student apartments that she was going to be staying in, went back to the school for a scheduled placement test, got a ride to the bank to open an account, and was taken to T-Mobile to get a new SIM card for her phone. Elizabeth's Uncle Rudy was also able to get her a job at a local Mexican restaurant about a half a mile from her house, so after getting all of that done, she headed back to her apartment with her new roommates to take a breather, because frankly, that is one hell of a day. Elizabeth wound up living at the Branbury Apartments, which is advertised as Brigham Young University Housing, or BYU. They're gorgeous for being student housing, and they kind of form a circle around a courtyard that has a pool and a hot tub in the middle, and this absolutely breathtaking mountain that's just chilling in the background. We don't have mountains where I live, so I'm always amazed when I see pictures of places where people are just existing and go grocery shopping with these mystical dirt mounds in the background. Elizabeth's case requires probably the most background I've ever had to give, because from what I've been told by locals, Provo, Utah is like a world within a world. A local explained it to me as, there's Mormon culture, there's Utah Mormon culture, and then there's Provo Mormon culture. Residents of Provo really came through for this episode, so you're going to hear me reference them a lot. Provo is an extremely conservative area with set beliefs. So much so that even the student housing had rules that they had to abide by, like separating the men from the women, having specific times and places set aside for visits with the opposite sex, no hot drinks like tea or coffee, no bikinis, etc., etc. That being said, another local I talked to who just happened to go to BYU in 2015 said that the apartments Elizabeth lived at weren't exactly the kind to enforce the rules that had been set. She said that the Branbury Apartments was where everyone would go to go hot tubbing, and I can't blame them because that hot tub looks amazing. She said that while there were rules against things like bikinis, they most definitely did wear them and without consequence. Lax rules like that seemed to make Elizabeth uncomfortable. Elizabeth was 26 when she came to Provo, and it is very much a college town. She was usually the oldest when it came to the groups of people she was around for school or church, and any sense of immaturity or disregard for the rules didn't really interest her. I talked to the detective on her case, and he said that after a short period of time with the roommates assigned to her particular apartment unit, she started texting her mom that she just didn't like it, that they were inviting guys over, they weren't cleaning up after themselves, and she just wasn't happy. She decided to try her luck with the apartment management to see if she could get moved into another unit, and they came through. She switched units, got a new set of roommates, and while she didn't seem to have much in common with them, Disappeared said that she enjoyed spending time alone in her room, focusing on her work and meditating in prayer. A lot of reports on Elizabeth's case allude to the idea that she wasn't very social, but based on what I've seen, she did make an effort to build some friendships. Her website noted that she'd run into someone at her apartment complex and hung out with them for an hour or so while they exchanged some English and Spanish, And another person commented on the Facebook page for Elizabeth and said that she'd met her at a bonfire event for the complex. On top of that, I spoke to the PI on her case who said that she'd met with some other students at the complex to watch the semi-annual Mormon conference. She was pretty active in her ward. 
A ward is essentially a congregation of the Mormon church. Technically, you can go to any ward you want to, but there are actually designated wards with ward boundaries based on where you live. In places where there's a smaller Mormon population, you might see a single ward for three counties, but the Mormon population in Provo is so big that they had different wards designated to different areas of Elizabeth's apartment complex alone. According to the PI, the simple act of her moving apartment units would have put her into a different ward than she was originally assigned to. While Elizabeth would have been assigned to a student ward, based on her website, it looks like she was also part of another one. Her website states that on March 29, 2015, she was looking for a ride to the YSA 140th Ward's Break the Fast Picnic. A Break the Fast Picnic is pretty common for student and singles wards after their monthly Sunday fast. And according to everything I could find, it looks like that particular ward is for young single adults between the ages of 18 and 30. Marriage is a huge part of the Mormon culture, and single wards play a big part in finding a suitable spouse. It's not uncommon for them to get married pretty young. According to ABC4, one of Elizabeth's uncles stated that one of the reasons she had decided to come to the U.S. was to get married in the temple with a good guy. But it doesn't sound like Elizabeth was interested in dating at all, at least not with any of the people who'd sought her out. Several sources have reported that guys at her school, work, and ward had all shown interest in her, asking her out on dates to movies, dances, and other events, but every time, Elizabeth turned them down. Unfortunately, she told her family that not all of the guys seemed to take that well. Elizabeth's days were simple. There wasn't much she did outside of home, school, work, and church. She didn't have a vehicle, but everything she did was in a two and a half mile radius, so she just walked the two miles to and from school every day and the half a mile to and from work. The only mention I've seen of her doing anything other than walking somewhere were the rides she'd gotten to set up her bank account, get her SIM card, and that account on her website saying that she was looking for transportation to that break the fast picnic. Even though Elizabeth was settling in well, she missed that built-in support system that she had with her family back home. Whenever she could connect to Wi-Fi, the detective on her case said that she would use WhatsApp to text her family. If there was Wi-Fi, Elizabeth was using it. The constant communication, morning, noon, and night, made it feel less like they were worlds away. They'd hear from her when she woke up, when she sent out her good morning text and ask about everyone's plans for the day, and she would tell them hers. When she got to school, she'd check in and see how everyone was doing, and when the day was winding down, they'd all chat about what was going on in their lives until it was time to go to bed. This scheduled streamline of communication is how her family realized pretty quickly that something wasn't right. On the morning of April 16th, 2015, Elizabeth woke up and texted her family as usual and then headed off to school. Classes didn't run long and she was let out by 1.30 p.m., Around that same time, she sent out two texts. They were in Spanish, but I'm going to use the English translations here. The first text was to her uncle Rudy, and the second was to her sister. According to Disappeared, she texted Rudy to ask if he could give her a ride to Walmart around 5.30 p.m. so she could pick up some groceries. He told her that he would, and that was that. According to the Facebook page for Elizabeth's investigation, the text to her sister was in response to the question, what are you doing? To which Elizabeth responded, already left school. On the surface, none of that seems particularly strange, but Elizabeth was a conversational person. She wasn't a text and run kind of gal. 
The fact that her uncle agreed to pick her up and Elizabeth didn't respond with any kind of follow-up was out of the norm. The fact that her only response to her sister was already left school was strange on a few different levels. First of all, her sister didn't ask if she had left school, she asked what she was doing. Elizabeth's sister was fully expecting a breakdown of her morning and how class went, what she planned on doing for the rest of the day, and anything else she had going on, but all she got was already left school. Her sister was immediately caught off guard, and so am I, looking at everything we know. Elizabeth used Wi-Fi to stay in contact with her family. Her phone activity was pretty centralized to the Wi-Fi at her apartment and school, so if this text was sent after she left school, what Wi-Fi was she connected to when she sent it? Because Elizabeth was so connected with her family, her sister texted her back to see if she'd gotten home asking if she'd arrived but she got no response. Not only did she not get a response, the messages that she sent didn't have that little double check mark beside them. When you send a message in WhatsApp, it shows a little gray check mark on the bottom right to indicate that your message to the other person was sent. When you see two gray check marks, you know the other person's phone received the text, and when those two check marks turn blue, you know that the person read them. The text to Elizabeth after already left school never got past that single gray check mark, indicating that her phone didn't even receive them. Over the next few hours, different members of Elizabeth's family tried getting a response from her, but it never came. It was weird enough to cause some widespread concern throughout her family, but not enough to cause a full panic. After all, her uncle was going to pick her up at 5.30, so at the very least, they figured they'd know she was okay by then but that's not what happened. When it came time for Rudy to give Elizabeth that ride to Walmart, he called her, but it went straight to voicemail. Neither texts nor calls were going through. Because it looks like Elizabeth was using Wi-Fi instead of cell phone service, there was a chance that she just didn't have any, and that's why nothing was being delivered. So her uncle told Disappeared that he went to the Walmart on his own to see if someone else might have taken her. If they had, that was fine, but he needed to make sure she was okay. He said that he walked up and down every single aisle, but Elizabeth wasn't there. Rudy tried his best to rationalize the situation and thought that maybe she'd gone to a church event or something and had just forgotten to tell him. But Rudy's trip was supposed to put a lot of minds at ease, and it didn't. Her family in Mexico waited, hoping to get their regularly scheduled evening texts from her, but those didn't come either. In the Disappeared episode, you can see that this is when her mom knew in her bones that something was wrong. Elizabeth's sister tried to comfort her and tell her that it was probably nothing, that she'd wake up the next morning with her normal good morning text from Elizabeth, but when the next morning came, there was nothing. At that point, it wasn't a question anymore. Something was wrong, they needed to figure out what, and they needed to find Elizabeth. Her uncle Rudy was the closest family member to Elizabeth being in Provo, but he actually wound up calling another one of Elizabeth's uncles, his brother Rosenberg, to tell him what was going on. And while Rosenberg couldn't do much because he was out in California, he told Rudy to head to Elizabeth's school to see if she was there. Rudy headed to the school, but according to the show, there was no school that day, so she wasn't there. His concern must have been pretty obvious because the school asked him what was wrong. They told him that he probably didn't have anything to worry about, that kids leave for long weekends all the time, and that she'd probably be back by Monday. None of Elizabeth's family thought that was the case, though. She'd never gone far outside of her two-and-a-half-mile bubble, and she had switched apartments because she didn't feel like her roommates were holding themselves to the same LDS standards that she held herself to, 
So going to Vegas seemed pretty far out of the realm of possibilities. Not to mention, it's not like she had a vehicle to take her anywhere. Her part-time job wasn't paying a ton of money, and she hadn't met a lot of people at that point. She'd only been there for a few weeks, and there was no one they could think of that she'd be close enough to go on a trip with, let alone to do it without letting anyone know about it. While the school did their best to try and ease Rudy's concerns, it didn't at all, so he went to her apartment to see if she was there, but the people living in the apartment said that they hadn't seen her. This detail is a little strange, because according to the detective that wound up investigating Elizabeth's case, Rudy actually went to Elizabeth's old apartment, not the one she had switched to. The detective said that she'd never told Rudy that she'd moved. Regardless of the fact that it looks like he went to the wrong apartment, he was running on the fact that no one had seen her, so his next stop was her work. But she wasn't there either. By 2 p.m., Rudy had exhausted every effort to try and find her, so Rosenberg, the uncle in California, called the Provo Police Department to report Elizabeth missing. The Provo Police Department didn't waste any time when it came to Elizabeth's disappearance. They tried to ping her phone, but there was nothing. That would be a major red flag in most cases, but knowing that she used Wi-Fi to keep in contact, the detective told me that they went to her apartment and the school to download the routers to see if they'd been used since she sent those last texts. Unfortunately, it didn't get them anywhere. They tried getting records from WhatsApp, but according to the detective, they don't hold on to data. The only way they'd be able to see anything she did on the app would be to look at her physical phone, which of course they didn't have. Knowing that there had to be other resources available that they didn't have particular access to, the detective said that they asked the FBI for help to try and narrow down where exactly her phone might have traveled. But according to him, all of her activity was, in fact, limited to that two-and-a-half-mile radius. Had her phone signaled somewhere outside of her normal everyday routine, they might have had something to go on, but it never did. So, it was time to talk to the school. That was the last place she'd been seen, so maybe someone had seen her and could give some kind of insight into where she might have gone. According to the Salt Lake Tribune, one of her uncles stated that the last time Elizabeth had been seen was by a classmate who saw her walk into the bathroom. He said that no one saw her walk out and there was no security footage of her leaving the school. If true, Elizabeth's text to her sister about having already left school gives the vibe that it wasn't actually sent from Elizabeth, but the text itself, being oddly phrased in short, had them questioning that anyways. Considering all of the above, the consensus actually seems to be that the last confirmed sighting of Elizabeth was by three classmates who saw her at the corner of West 100 North and North 400 West. Basically, she'd walked about a block north after getting out of class. Knowing that she had started her two-mile walk north to her apartment, there were a couple of routes she could have taken to go home. But no matter which route you took, almost all of them led back to North 500 West, which turns into State Street and then back to her apartment. Knowing the route she could have taken, detectives started walking down each and every one of them looking for any cameras they could find. If they could track her movements, they could narrow down which cameras did see her and when they stopped to get a better idea of where to start looking. The detective said that they checked for home and business cameras, but none of them pointed towards the road except for one. The street camera for Utah Valley Hospital that just so happened to be on North 500 West, the most likely route that she would have taken home. 
This camera felt like it was going to be the first real break in the investigation, but when they asked to look at the footage, they found out that it had actually been turned around to face the construction that was going on at the hospital. It was a dead end, and they had to face the fact that there was absolutely no footage of Elizabeth's walk home. Just like that, they were back to square one. The next order of business was checking with Elizabeth's roommates, the old ones and the current ones, and according to KSL, they all had the same account, that they hadn't seen her since she left for school that morning, and they hadn't noticed anything strange before she did. Just to be sure, detectives searched around her new apartment to see if there was any indication that she'd come home after leaving school, and there was none. Classmates had told detectives that she was wearing a red shirt with blue jeans and a denim jacket, that she had on brown knee-high boots and was carrying a denim bag with a red strap, but none of those items were found at her apartment. What they did find, as reported by KUTV, were her passport and all other forms of identification. If Elizabeth had left on her own to go somewhere for days, she'd certainly need her IDs and at least a change of clothes or two, but it was like she had left for school that morning with nothing but exactly what she would have needed, fully intent on coming back, but never did. So where was she? The only clear conclusion at that point was that whatever happened to Elizabeth had happened somewhere in that two-mile stretch of road between her school and her apartment. But what? It was a route that she walked damn near every day, and according to SafeWise, Provo is the second safest metro city in the country. That being said, I did have a law enforcement officer from a neighboring county reach out to me, and they said that Provo was on the secretive side, that people are more likely to report something to their bishop than they are to the police. Another local said that their bishop was essentially their judge and jury. This was all echoed by an article from KUTV in 2017, which detailed a lawsuit against the LDS Church where a woman claims that she reported child abuse to her bishop, fully expecting them to handle the situation, and didn't immediately go to law enforcement first. So while Provo is listed as being one of the safest metro cities in the country, it's possible that there are issues that don't get reported to police and are instead handled inside the church. Regardless of all of that, the bottom line was that Elizabeth disappeared in broad daylight walking down a well-traveled, busy street in the middle of the day in a city with very few reported crimes, and no one noticed a thing. No one had reported seeing a struggle, hearing a commotion, or anything even close to that. Certainly, if someone had just grabbed her off the street, one of the countless number of people walking and driving by would have noticed. To add to that, for the majority of Elizabeth's walk home, the sideway isn't directly beside the street. I measured it out and it looks like there's a 10-foot patch of grass separating the street from the sidewalk. And even then, the closest lane of traffic is the bus lane. To grab her off of the sidewalk, someone would have had to have parked their vehicle, gotten out, walked 10 feet, overtaken her, and gotten back to their vehicle without anyone noticing. That seems extremely unlikely, and everyone seems to be on the same page that that's probably not what happened. The most plausible theory that everyone seems to agree with is that someone Elizabeth knew and trusted offered her a ride and that she got into the vehicle willingly. Who that was and where they went after that, no one knows. In talking to the LDS church members in Provo, several people told me that it's an overly trusting community, 
that it's not uncommon for them to blindly trust one another purely based on the fact that they too are LDS. When I asked a local if we're talking about trust someone to watch your baby while you walk into the bank kind of trust, without hesitation, she said, oh, absolutely. Another former LDS member from Provo said that even though she's no longer with the church, she has to stop herself from trusting strangers the way that she used to, saying that growing up, even as a child, if someone came to her door, she'd just open it up and let them in and run and tell her parents that they had company. I don't know about you, but if someone rings my doorbell when I'm not expecting anyone, I resist every urge to hit the deck and then shimmy between the windows and peek through to see if I know them. And if I don't, I don't answer the door. And that's not to say that there's anything wrong with the trustworthy atmosphere that they have created there. It's just to say that Provo-Mormon culture is vastly different than everyday American culture. With the determination that she likely got into the car with someone she knew, police went back to the drawing board. School, home, work, church. The only people Elizabeth had gotten to know in those few weeks she was in Provo were going to be from those four places. And police started with the men that Elizabeth said had asked her out, particularly the ones that she told her family had made her uncomfortable. According to Disappeared, detectives tracked down the guy from school, and while early reports in the media had portrayed him as someone who might have gotten really aggressive when she turned him down, he didn't have the same take on the situation. Yes, he had asked her out, but when she said no, he'd simply moved on with his day and that was that. On the date and time of her disappearance, he said that he was hanging out with friends, so police tracked them down and his alibi checked out. Just to cover all bases, they searched his car and his home, and there was nothing. So it was on to the next. The next person on the let's check this guy out list was a construction worker who had come into her work. According to Disappeared, he was infatuated with her and had told her that she didn't need to work and he'd buy her anything. The whole interaction made her really uncomfortable. Elizabeth's co-workers kept an eye out for him and when he came back in, called the police who followed him home. He let them come inside and do their thing, his alibi checked out, and just like the guy from school, there was no indication that he had anything to do with Elizabeth's disappearance. Frankly, there was an almost 0% chance that she'd have gotten into a vehicle with either of them, but police had to check. And unfortunately, after all of that, they were back to square one again. Provo wasn't used to any of this, and the likelihood that something bad had happened was growing by the day. Local college campuses around the area started setting up safety precautions for their female students. One local who went to BYU in 2015 said that the school sent out an email letting students know about a new program where you could call a campus security officer to escort you home, and they also advised students to walk in groups and try to get home before dark. She also said that a lot of the student wards had set up a system where you could call a guy from your ward and he'd meet you wherever you were and walk you home. It really shook the community that something like this could happen there, but that shock did not stop them from rallying to find her. People who didn't even know Elizabeth started organizing searches, and no one hesitated to show up. In the Disappeared episode, you can see hundreds of people walking around town, getting on the ground to check drainage pipes, walking along the riverbanks, checking under bridges, and carefully searching through the woods to see if they could find any trace of her, but there was nothing a name that everyone recognized, stepped up to the plate to join in the search for her. But who exactly that was and what they had to say is going to have to wait until next week. 
Elizabeth Salgado's case is one that I initially thought would be a single episode where we spread the word and hope to generate any information that might be lingering out there. But after I thought I finished my research, it quickly turned into so much more. With the help of the community, the PI, and law enforcement assigned to the case, all who were gracious enough to help me with this episode, I realized that what I thought I knew about her case was just the tip of the iceberg, and we're going to go through it all. For all photos pertaining to this case, check out Elizabeth's highlight at the top of my Instagram profile at the Heather Ashley, and join me there tonight at 8 p.m. Eastern, where you go live with me and we talk about today's episode and all other true crime cases on your mind. I'll be bringing you part two a week from today, and I cannot wait. But until then, we out. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch, involved in a then-unheard-of secret organization called the Illuminati, and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes.